Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Pulse oximetry is a commonly used monitoring technology for assessing oxygen saturation and pulse rate. But for many years, traditional pulse oximetry was plagued by unreliability when it was needed most, during patient motion and low perfusion. Massimo overcame this challenge with Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET. With its ability to measure through motion and low perfusion, Massimo SET has opened new frontiers in patient monitoring during challenging conditions, helping clinicians improve patient outcomes. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear what is in the October issue of the journal. Hello, and welcome to the October 2022 Respiratory Cares Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast. I'm Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice by Ringing Colleagues investigated potential environmental contamination during invasive ventilation and aerosol therapy in an ex vivo lung model. They ventilated porcine lungs at varying breathing patterns with and without aerosol therapy. Bacteriophage stock was introduced into the lungs and viral particles and exhaled gas were measured. They found no difference in exhaled viral RNA with and without nebulization. The authors concluded that aerosol therapy during invasive ventilation was not associated with increased fugitive aerosols. Saunders and Davis provide commentary noting that the study is limited to invasive ventilation and that a patient with an intact upper airway capable of coughing represents the greatest concern for fugitive aerosols. But I think this is important as during the COVID-19 pandemic, aerosol therapy was often discontinued even during mechanical ventilation for concern of environmental contamination and potentially making the caregiver sick. Of course, we see far too much aerosol therapy in mechanically ventilated patients with no indication, but this shouldn't be a reason that we don't do it. Sancho and others evaluated the use of waveforms to assess mechanical insufflation exufflation in ALS patients. Bulbar dysfunction in ALS can cause upper airway collapse, reducing MIE effectiveness. The authors administered MIE at equal inspiratory and expiratory pressures from 10 to 50 centimeters of water pressure. Airway pressure and flow waveforms were evaluated for laryngeal collapse. They reported that airway collapse occurred in half of the subjects during the insufflation phase and 20% of the subjects during exufflation. The investigators concluded that airway graphics during MIE can be used to guide therapy and avoid these complications. Anderson and Volostar's accompanying editorial highlights the importance of measures beyond just cough peak flow to evaluate MIE efficiency. In particular, the abrupt flattening of the expiratory flow curve suggests upper airway closure. Again, I think it's just as important that this problem in the patients with bulbar ALS occurs during the inspiratory phase. So when we increase the pressure to try and improve cough, sometimes that's counterproductive. And Dr. Anderson's videos on the YouTube website um, nicely show this um, using laryngoscopy so you can actually see the larynx close during MIE. Burr and colleagues studied factors associated with a positive view of respiratory therapy leadership using a post hoc analysis of a previously published study evaluating burnout. They the study consisted of over a thousand responsive, two-thirds of which included a positive view of leadership. Positive views of leadership were more likely to happen in facilities with adequate staffing 
and were associated with fewer missed work days. Negative views of leadership were associated with burnout and more missed work days. Linda Goodfellow suggests that in innovative solutions are required to reverse the attrition among respiratory therapists and job dissatisfaction. She suggests this likely include implementing value efficiency care to enhance not only the real, but the perceived value of the respiratory therapist at the bedside. Baer et al. studied respiratory therapy faculty views of interprofessional education compared with other allied health faculty. Interprofessional education competencies included communication, teams and teamwork, roles and responsibilities, as well as ethics. Across the range of respiratory therapy degree programs, faculty rank communication first, followed by teams and roles and responsibilities. Associate degree programs rank teamwork lower than the bachelor's and master's degree programs. Danzi and others sought to assess staffing needs and the future of the respiratory therapy profession prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. A survey was mailed to 618 AARC members in Louisiana, and they received a 19% response rate. Hospital-based respiratory therapists were more likely to describe poor staffing, and salary was identified as their most important concern. Room for growth and scope of practice followed salary as important factors. 70% of respondents agreed that a bachelor's degree should be the entry level for practice. They concluded that respiratory, therapies support the, respiratory therapists support the bachelor's entry level standard and a desire for higher education in an effort to achieve professional growth and advancement was important. Terry and Ari studied the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on respiratory therapy student enrollment, retention, and success on NBRC credentialing exams. They retrospectively reviewed data from associate degree program with 69 graduates over a five-year period. They looked at three years before the pandemic and two years after the pandemic. Student applications, enrollment, and retention were consistent across these time periods. They concluded that instructional changes impl implemented during the pandemic appeared to decrease the student's first-time pass rate. They believe that part of the reason for the lower pass rate may be that the pandemic prevented students from achieving their clinical rotations, therefore reducing their experience. Palat respectively evaluated the risk of developing interstitial lung disease in subjects with COVID-19. Subject histories, laboratory results, imaging data, and treatments provided were analyzed. Subjects had high-resolution CT scans at three to six months post-hospital discharge. Of 446 subjects, abnormal high-resolution CT was found in 35% of patients. They found that the development of late-stage interstitial lung disease was associated in men at older age and who had greater severity of disease during their hospitalization. Coward Al performed a randomized clinical trial of adult subjects extubated after at least 24 hours of invasive ventilation. They compared standard of care monitoring to automated monitoring using the integrated pulmonary index. They found no difference in the reintubation rate, hospital length of stay, mortality, or ICU costs. They reported that RT time associated with patient assessment and therapy provided were significantly lower in the automated monitoring group. The authors concluded that the automated system to initiate RT-driven care saved time, despite the fact that it failed to confer any important patient outcomes. Vest and coworkers performed a retrospective review of an existing database to evaluate the impact of timing of intubation based on the ROCKS index in COVID-19. Multivariable logistic regression was used to evaluate the impact of ROCKS on mortality. ROCKS was analyzed as a continuous variable as well as a categorical variable 
using predefined cutoffs that previously predicted success of hyponasal cannula. In over a thousand subjects, increasing age and longer time from admission to intubation were associated with mortality. After adjusting for sex, race, age, and comorbidities, higher ROC score at the time of intubation was associated with a lower mortality. This suggests that intubation before profound hypoxemia, where intubation became an emergency event, might actually be resulted with better patient outcome. Guterres-Martinez et al. evaluated the safety of peak inspiratory pressure during lung recruitment in a neonatal porcine model of respiratory distress. They defined the peak inspiratory pressure and mean airway pressure at which pneumothorax was produced by increasing PEEP in two centimeter water pressure increments. Pneumothorax was observed at 54 centimeters of water and a mean airway pressure in a PIP of 65. Hemodynamic changes were seen at far lower airway pressures. They concluded that hemodynamic monitoring was critical for safe application of recruitment maneuvers separate from the concerns over barotrauma. Z and others retrospectively reviewed changes in early respiratory support management and the impact on outcomes and complications in a preterm infants over a 13-year period. They divided time into three periods of three years each from 2007 to 2020. Outcomes included mortality, incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, complications, initial respiratory support, and duration of ventilation. They demonstrated marked reduction in the use of invasive ventilation and a fall in the incidence of severe BPD. Notably, other complications including pneumothorax, pulmonary hemorrhage, necrotizing enterocolitis, intraventricular hemorrhage, and periventricular leukomalacia were unchanged. Clearly, over the last 20 years, the use of non-invasive ventilation from neonates to adult has surged and invasive ventilation has fallen in an effort to reduce complications associated with intubation. Nair and others performed a matched cohort study of preterm inference less than 32 weeks with and without an unplanned extubation. The main outcome variables were duration of ventilation, hospital length of stay, BPD, and retinopathy of prematurity. Infants suffering an unplanned extubation had longer ICU and hospital stays, but no increase in BPD. They concluded that unplanned extubations resulted in longer durations of ventilatory support, but these were not associated with a greater risk of either ROP or BPD. Hasmaki et al. provide a short report on adverse events during early mobility in subjects with COVID-19. Despite subject severity of illness, they did not find an increased incidence of adverse events in this population. Feinstein et al. contribute a short report on the results of survey regarding vaping habits of patients scheduled for elective surgery. They noted that many respondents were not asked about their vaping history, and a number of respondents did not identify vaping as a form of smoking. This is particularly important as you're taking a medical history. If you ask the patient if they smoke, they say no, but they are vaping and they don't associate the two. Um, so it may require a change in the preoperative interview. Cardinal Fernandez et al. provide a systematic review of application of automatic tube compensation during a spontaneous breathing trial. They report that ATC was associated with the highest probability of extubation success, but not SBT success. Calais and colleagues provide a narrative review of silent hypoxia in the context of COVID-19. This paper reviews the physiology of silent hypoxemia and the misconceptions that have promulgated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Early in the pandemic, we saw lay reports as well as scientific reports about this concept of happy hypoxics. And these observations were probably close to true, but there are physiologic mechanisms 
which underlie all these observations that are neither novel nor unique to COVID-19. And this paper by Rich is really um, very helpful in helping to understand the complexity of the control of breathing and hypoxemia in patients with respiratory failure. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We look forward to speaking with you again. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.